Welcome to the Signal Noise podcast on ProSound Web, sponsored by Blue Microphones. I'm Keith Clark, editor of ProSound Web and Live Sound International, joined by my co-host, Michael Lawrence, technical editor of PSW and LSI, an accomplished audio professional in his own right. Hey, everyone. How you doing? Thanks for listening. We're joined this time by Chris Mitchell, the front of house engineer for Umphreys McGee, a really intriguing band that's noted for experimenting with a wide range of musical styles. We're going to be talking about several topics with him, including his inaugural article for Live Sound and Pro Sound Web entitled How to Disappear Completely, where he details his quest to remove corrective parametric EQ from the input channels of his mix. Welcome, Chris. Hi. Glad to be here. Thanks for being here, man. This is cool. I'm looking forward to uh, chatting with you. Me as well. So why don't we start? We can, we can get into the, the primary topic here, but could you give us a bit of background on, uh, you know, basically how you came up in the business and uh, how you find yourself where you're at now? Sure, I'd love to. Um, I got started um, after I got out of the Navy back in the 90s, uh, looking around for something to do. Um, wasn't able to quite fit my uh, nuclear career into uh, the civilian world, so... Um, one thing led to another and uh, ended up at a day job doing electrical engineering. And as a hobby, uh, audio had always been following me around. Um, then the hobby grew. Um, what started off as a project studio and uh, running sound at uh, local clubs turned into you know, out of town on the weekends and festivals all summer. And then one magical day, I was able to quit the day job and, and go into a full time. Haven't looked back. So, how long have you been with the band? Uh, January will be uh, the beginning of my ninth year. Wow. Yeah, time flies. Why do you think it's lasted so long? Um, wow. It's a great fit for me. It's a great fit for the band. Um, it's kind of strange. Um, I've known the previous front of house engineer the band has only ever had two. Um, Kevin Browning was the, uh, the first engineer, and he uh, was with the band for you know, from day one when they were all still starting at Notre Dame. Kevin and I knew each other uh, from bumping into each other at festivals and him coming to North Carolina and uh, the band was playing at venues I worked at. Um, after a while, we struck up a friendship and uh, he kept ending conversations with, one of these days, I'm going to call you up and offer you my job. Uh, yeah, whatever. You know, it, in my opinion, he had the greatest job he could have. You know, uh, And then... After some time of working together, he called me up one day and said, hey, I'm going to offer you this gig I've got. And it's just been the, the greatest mesh ever since. Um, the band really trusts in what I do. I try to pursue the, the truest representation of what they're trying to present. Um, they're known for you know being able to play anything, anytime, and you know turn on a dime. And I do my best to keep up with it and uh, give them a good product. I, I would say that probably most of us that are working in the live sound reinforcement field do not have the consistency of working with the same act for such a long period of time. And so can you can you talk a little bit about, you know, 
how that becomes probably more of a dialogue over time versus, you know, it's a one-off. It's just, you know, I'm going to make you guys sound as good as I can. But if you have an ongoing relationship with the artist, you know, what's that dialogue like in terms of them trying to work on their sound or trying to achieve certain things and your role in that and how you maybe guide them and work with them to, to get what they want? Sure. Um, it, it started back, um, see, the, the gig I had previous to this, I was working for a, a percussionist named Mickey Hart. Uh, one of the guys in the Grateful Dead and uh, Mickey really got me into the habit of listening to mixes after the show. Um, and I was doing monitors for Mickey. So that was <laughs> quite a big deal going back and listening to monitor mixes. Uh, but you know, whatever he wanted to listen to, we listened to. Uh, and I got very into analyzing in a, a causality way, what I would do on stage and the result, whether it would help me fix the problem I was trying to fix or not fix the problem I was trying to fix. So when I got the gig with Umphreys, I kind of came into it with, with that type of mentality. Um, be preemptive. Try to figure out things before they become problems and and find solutions for them early. Um, they really like that because you know, it, it helps them tune their chops as well with so much improvisation going on. So we sat down with recordings. Um, I'll listen to it with you know the drummer or the guitar players, the bass player, whatever, and we'll go over individual sections and try to figure out, okay, overall is the place in the mix. Good. Is the tonality good? Uh, when we change from this style of music to that style of music, um, is it something that the musician is doing that is affecting the mix or is it something that I'm doing that's affecting the mix and how we can get a, a solution that works for everybody that in the end makes everything sound good, but you know, that doesn't prevent the, the flow of music from happening because, you know, these guys being improvisational, everything has to be about the feel and the flow. So from the very beginning, we were taking small steps, um, trying to get um, the sound that they were producing to be what they were expecting to hear on the recordings so that, you know, any changes that would have to be made would not affect um, either front of house or monitors in a bad way. Um, my choices were always reviewed, you know, when you've got, a hundred shows a year, you can go back to a particular recording. And since we record every show, it's, it's pretty easy to listen to, uh, and say, okay, on these two, three, four, five shows, we had this particular mic on this particular thing. Um, let's compare it to the one after. And we could go through and have one or two small things at a time that we could compare and see what worked and what didn't. And then over the course of, you know, a hundred or 110 shows in a year, you can fine tune those small things one of the things we started going for was to have the same thing in the monitor mix as the front of house mix helps everybody out. Um, you really don't have to change much. You know, the sound is what everybody wants to hear from the beginning. And all you have to do is get the levels right and the dynamics. Um, so we would start working on uh, all these small things and remove changes that were being made after they were generated. For example, um, the bass player. I worked with the bass player to get his tone to sound the way he wanted coming out of the DEI so that we wouldn't have to worry about getting the tone correct in the monitor console. And then front of house has, has a completely other task of getting uh, his tones to match up with, with what's going on. So a lot of that was fine-tuning what the, the individual musicians wanted in their head first and then moving forward into creating that as a sound. 
Uh, and you're right, having that many number of shows to, to fine tune the details really helps. Um, I think we're up to 800 shows now under my belt. <laughs> Uh, I, I do some lots work. of time to fine tune those little things. <laughs> yeah, I, I I bet I uh, I don't mix monitors regularly if I can if I can help it. But one of the bands I work with regularly, they're all on ears and and they're not big enough to have two engineers. And so I I you know I mix their ears and and I mix their front of house and everyone is happy. And uh, what I've found is you know two things that that really mesh with what you're saying, which is one we've put a lot of time into getting the source right. Um, you know, not, Hey, let me put all this EQ on your guitar amp to make it sound right. But let's, let's work with your pedals. Let's work with your tone. Let's work with your settings on your guitar amp. So when the sound leaves the amp, it sounds the way we want it to. And then I just reinforce it. Um, and we've been doing, you know, we're looking at, uh, going through the whole gain structure of the pedal boards and, and we're playing with sans amps and we're playing with, with different types of DIs. And, and, you know, the, the benefit of that is at the end of the day, I, I'm throwing a fader up. And, you know, maybe there's a high-pass filter, and it sounds great. And in the inners, they're going, wow, I sound really clear. And, and so to me, if I'm starting to get all sorts of crazy stuff going on in, in the signal chain at the desk, it's sort of an indicator that maybe there's some work to be done at the source. And so, um, you know, that's one of the things you were writing about for us, which, which we're going to get to in a bit. But the other thing that, that I'd like to kind of bounce off you is I've also found that sometimes you sort of have to anticipate what the artist is hearing and what they're going to want, meaning – you know, I can tell when they're going to maybe want to hear a little more guitars in the mix because the momentum's building or when the singer's having maybe trouble hearing her intonation and she needs a little more of herself or she wants some more reverb. And you sort of have to have a, a sixth sense about it, uh, monitoring their, you know, kind of how they're feeling and their mojo and their energy level. And you sort of kind of try to anticipate that and get out ahead of, oh, this big hit's coming up and I want to make sure her vocal doesn't get buried in it. And so that's something that, that is a little bit different than uh you know my typical front of house experience where you just okay here comes the mix and let's let's tweak it but trying to trying to really be inside the the artist's head a little bit and and sometimes you know better than them what they want maybe they can't uh you know kind of elaborate on, on in in technical terms but i said you know still talk to me tell me how you're feeling but i i found that i i do better and my band you know my artist is more comfortable if i'm really trying to be in their shoes and think about what would i be feeling right now if, if if I were in this situation and if I were hearing these things and, and what would I want, what would make me more comfortable? Yeah, I agree with that completely. Um, one of the, the best things I ever did for my front of house mix was do monitors for eight years. Uh, getting into the musician's head is, is really the best way to do monitors where you can anticipate the move they're getting ready to ask you for from the physical clues that they're, they're presenting, you know, like uh, watching a, a poker player play and you'll get that that little tail where you know you think they're bluffing because uh, their eyebrows always raise up. Well, back when I was doing monitors for Mickey, I could always tell something was wrong when his eyebrows would raise up. So <laughs> you, you get that little psychological thing. Uh, okay, something in the mix is getting ready to change. Here's some tension happening. And every musician is different, but every musician telegraphs it. Um, and once I started figuring that out from the front of house, point of view uh, i could start anticipating when you know a change was coming up a big hit a solo um, into the verse beginning of the chorus um, you can start anticipating those things from something that's going on on stage i can't quite put it all together and it's different from every band you listen to but once you watch a band for half a set you'll start figuring it out right and doing monitors gave me a very big insight into that yeah 
And and I think that that really does translate over in the front of house too, in terms of having the mix be an immersive. You know, I, I really view myself when I'm when I'm working front of house. I sort of view myself as as the custodian uh, that's supposed to just bring that performance forward from the artist and, and help connect it to the audience. And and you know, very much a just I'm in the transmission role here, and so you know, let me make this as organic as possible, and, and just ensure that what the artist is doing on stage is is translating as well as possible to to the audience and you know mainly i'm a system tech and so i think that really plays into it too which is let's just create a transparent transmission system where i know that whatever the guy's doing at the desk is going to go to the audience yep yeah, i agree completely on that um if you uh when i'm making a mix i want whatever the the musician is generating on stage emotionally to be able to transfer it to the audience without getting in the way without the audience member thinking wow, this would be great except for the way it sounds. Um, so I, I agree. A lot of times you just want to uh, help the artist generate that emotional music to transfer to the audience and help with the transfer and not be noticed by anyone when it happens. Yeah, I, you know, the best show for me is the one when no one knows I'm there and there's no comments. You know, if someone's got a comment about the audio, probably wasn't a good show for me, you know, so I try to just, you know, stay out of that loop completely. And if I'm doing my job right, you're going to leave and you, you wouldn't have even thought about it. You know, you just said, well, the band was amazing. Absolutely. The band was great, you know? Um, and, and, you know, the other thing that I, that I've noticed from you in particular is the other side of this, which is, yes, you do talk to the artists and say, hey, you know, how are you guys feeling? How can I help make you more comfortable? But you've also said that to the band's fans before you've gone into places and forums and websites where, where the fans are and saying, Hey guys, how's your concert experience? How is it sounding? And you know, what can I do to, to help you enjoy this more? And that, I think really just demonstrates, you know, your, your dedication to let me make sure I'm really doing everything I can to serve the artist and to serve the audience. Oh, hundred um, percent. You know, the, the artist is in one hand a customer, but in the other hand, it's the opposite side of a relationship. And I want the, the band and the audience to have a great relationship. Um, and if I'm helping facilitate it, you know, just, like you're the, the the best friend on the sidelines of this dude trying to get hooked up. If you have some inside <laughs> hints as what's happening on the other side, then you can tailor your delivery to make the process happen. Wow. That was very hard way to say that. <laughs> um, but yeah. Hey, leave that to me. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. Uh, if you can find out, you know, what kind of food she likes and, you know, the neighborhood she's from and, you know, the high school she went to, then that'll make, you know, the, the small talk better. On the other hand, you know, if you're talking to the, the fans of the band and you find out that you know, a bunch of them think it's too loud or a big majority of them can't hear the bass player or, you know, pick something. Um, and if enough of those start to add up, you know, it, it can't just be a, a fluke. You know, it's gotta be something. So it, it helps me um, double check the job that I'm doing without just, you know, relying on people that normally tell me it sounds good, that it sounds good. So right. uh, if you don't go in and talk to your worst critic, you never really get, you know, a, a true representation of what's going on. And, and you know, what's interesting about that is I, I love this idea that as a front of house engineer, you're sort of a surrogate audience member. You know, you're, you're making decisions on behalf of the entire audience. Uh, you know, ideally we're missing the show that they want to hear. And so, 
uh, you know, I think one of the comments that you've gotten in the past was somebody that said, uh, you know, I can't always hear all the keyboards. And what I find really interesting about that is, you know, these people, although they don't have any engineering background probably, they still are really, really tuned into how they're perceiving the show and how they're hearing it and the balance of things. And they may not know why. You know, and you said, yeah, you know, this is something that we've been working on and, you know, there's issues with – with the way that the masking is with the other instruments. And so we as engineers identify this as an issue and we know the name for it and we know why it happens and we know, you know a couple of things that we can do to, to try to work through that. But having none of that knowledge, the audience member is still, I think, remarkably perceptive of what am I hearing. And so I think there may be a tendency at times to say, well, they don't know what they're talking about. They don't understand what I do. But at the end of the day, we're there for them and they really do really, really closely hear. I mean, some of the comments I've gotten from from audience members, these guys are very, very, they're very perceptive, especially if they know the band, like your band's fans are very dedicated to the band, they're familiar with the material, and they, they, they do hear uh, some pretty amazing stuff. They make some great observations, and so I think to ignore that is to do a big disservice, both to yourself as an engineer and, and to the artist that, that's hired you. Oh, yeah, 100%. Um, there, there's a, a line that I have. Um, I don't really feel like that I'm mixing a show in a venue. I feel like I'm mixing a show in a studio and the control room holds 500 people or 2000 <laughs> people or 20,000 people. That's the way I'm looking at it. You know, it's a different way of turning around the responsibilities, of what's going on, but you're right. If, if I'm acting as a surrogate for all those other people that are watching the show with me, then I'm trying to make the best decision so that the way I'm enjoying it is also the way that they're enjoying it. And I try to step into their ears and, 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 see if that's the way that it's actually happening. Right. So, you know, uh, you being, you know, it's, it's largely, like you said, it's largely an improv band. You said half the stuff they do is, is improvised. It would seem to me that if I were in that situation, I would not be doing a lot of snapshotting, recalling automation. I would just make sure that I had quick access to all the channels I needed to get to and to the parameters I needed to get to, and then just sort of fly with it. Uh, can you talk about your approach to, to mixing a band where you don't know ahead of time what's going to happen? Um, I got lots of experience doing that uh, when I got into the business. Um, like most people, um, I was at a, a small club in a college town, um, three bands a night, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. And you know, a lot of times those bands were you know, either not associated with each other or different genres or totally different styles. So I kind of got used to figuring it out during the first song. Everything's a different genre. Um, lots of effective improvisation because you know, I certainly didn't know what was going on or had heard the bands before. And with that, um, I was able to hone my skills so that when I got into um, festival situations, and it was the same thing over and over again, but uh, even a much wider variety, um, I tried to find things that were applicable across m multiple genres that I could use to help me mix my show and it you know, sound good no matter what the band, the genre, the number of musicians, the PA, the concert, or whatever. And a lot of that was simplifying things. Um, very few plugins, uh, if anything, one or two tube compressor plugins and nothing else. Um, no fancy EQ, fancy routing, fancy ways of processing things that would work great in one particular situation, but if you're just wanting to get a mix up, um, get the show happening, uh, get the fans 
enjoying the music within the first, you know, 30 seconds, minute, whatever, then you have to treat everything as though it's improvisation, as though, you know, you really don't know what's getting ready to happen next, but you have to put the mix together so that somebody can enjoy it. So it might as well be me. And I'm hoping that my way of enjoying a mix <laughs> applies to everybody else in the audience. So far, it's worked out pretty good. But I'm constantly asking, uh, what do you like? How's this mix? Uh, what did you think of the last band? Um, if I'm doing festival work, I'll walk out in between acts and uh, strike up conversations with random people, not telling them you know, who I am or what I do, but just talking about music and the mix and see if I can get insights. You know, what's it like way off to the right? What's it like way in the back? Um, are any of you know the the band's fans nearby and, and know, you know, this is kind of what they sound like, or this is nothing like what they sound like. I try to pick those things up. And when I moved with Humphreys, I was able to apply a lot of that knowledge and technique into the way they played, you know, with, see, it's 400 some odd originals now. And I don't know how many covers they do. The list is <laughs> off the charts. Um, it, it's really nice to be able to pick up anywhere they're at. You know, if, if they start off in the chorus, if they start off in the verse, if they play a song I've never heard before, if they're doing improv in something that, you know, which happens all the time, I can approach it and be able to make the mix work without having to rely on a plug-in scene that was finely crafted that only works you know, for that one song or, um, techniques to that effect that have been honed for, you know, the, the touring acts that have the same set list every night don't work for us. So I've, I've had to come up with uh, self checks and uh, tricks to make all those things happen every night. You know, and I think that's, there's so much in the workflow that's really dictated by, you know, what does the show call for? So, you know, I, there's, there's the, the time where you're mixing Lincoln Park and you've got, you know, it's such a programmed show and it's such a, a finely processed show and they get that awesome album sound live and it sounds great, but you can't just walk up to that and throw faders, you know? And then on the other hand, you've got the one-off for the band you never worked with before. Um, and so I'm not going to approach those things the same way. And, and one of the things that you're talking about that, that I think I, that I wish I learned earlier in my career was to listen to the artists and to listen to the artists fans. And, uh, you know, one, one, one-off I didn't in particular was one of those, you know, college spring meltdown weekends where they got a bunch of artists coming in and one of them had just blown up and was just sort of kind of coming up onto the national pop level. And, um, she had a whole bunch of tracks and a live band and I, you know, had heard her name, but I, I didn't know anything about her music. And, uh, I, I started mixing the show and I just said, I don't think this sounds good. I, you know, I wouldn't have, Oh, I didn't like the way the tracks were sitting. I didn't like the way the drums were sitting. And, her road manager came up to me and he listened for 20 seconds and he said, yeah, it sounds, sounds really good. He said, can you just, can you bring the background vocals up like, you know, one DB? And I said, sure, there you go. And he said, yeah, that's it. That's great. And I'm sitting there like, really? That's, that's great. I said, I don't, I'm not happy with this. And then I went home and I, I listened to a couple of her songs and I said, oh, that's what she sounds like. Um, and so that's such an important perspective because if I had had that ahead of time, I would have said, well, I have an idea in my head of how her show sounds, how she wants her music to sound. And I really have some direction in terms of where do these tracks sit because sometimes the tracks are, are the show and sometimes they're barely in there. And, and those types of things you wouldn't know ahead of time. So uh, one thing I learned from that is you have to start with 
what is the sound that the artist is making and what are they expecting their show to sound like and, and how do we get closer to that? So now, even if it's a one-off, even if it's you know a crappy YouTube video that was filmed on a phone, I try to find something where I can see what the artist sounds like and watch them do what they do. And, and then I've got sort of a, a basis to go forward and make those decisions. You know, do I need plugins for this show? Do I need to automate for this show? Do I need to just throw and go for the show? How am I going to handle that? So, um, you know, I, I think that's uh, it's one of those things where there's so many different workflows and there's so many different approaches and it just comes down to a knowledge of what's appropriate in this situation. Yep, 100%. Uh, there are, you know, situations where, where scenes uh, come in handy, very handy. Um, I've done a few broadcast shows where without scenes, I don't know if it could have happened. Um, and each situation that you get into requires different tool sets to solve those problems. Uh, so there is no wrong way to do it per se. Um, but there's always a, a more streamlined way to do it. I have found, um, even though I've, you know, we're eight years in on Umphreys, um, once a year, I, uh, start from scratch and completely put my mix back together again, because, you know, over the course of a hundred shows, I would think that I have evolved or changed or learned something or, you know, want to do something different from the mix. And I found the easiest way to do that is to just, you know, open up the, offline editor and start from scratch once a year. Um, that way I, I can always get what I want now versus carrying forward something I just happened to have in the mix from the year before. Yeah, um, absolutely. And those, those tools that I use to put that together have definitely been honed in the, okay, this is the first time I've heard this, how this is going to happen. You know, once you get that toolbox full, it, it makes building a mix for a band that you've known before so much more flexible and precise and, and fun. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree. And, you know, it's funny that you say that because we just did a, you know, one of the bands I was working with. I, uh, you know, I had worked with them in rehearsals and built built a good show file up for them and tweak it over time. And you get to the point where everybody's happy. And then due to the, the specifics of one venue that we were doing, we had to use a different desk because of the way the snake was connected. It was a logistical thing that they said, well, it's just easier if you just use this desk. And I said, OK, so, you know, I, I don't want to be the guy that's stuck on the show file. Like, you no, know, if I can mix this band, I should be able to spin this 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 mix back up and i did and i went back in and i rebuilt it from scratch and they said wow this desk sounds better we should sell our desk and get this desk and i said it's not the desk it's that i started over you know and i I, in starting over incorporated all the things i learned the first time and all the things that that it took me a while to figure out about how your mixes are put together and how to treat certain things and the way your voice sits in the mix you know now that i've got all that in the bag so to speak when i start over you know like you said it's more streamlined and so i definitely really see some value in and just zeroing out the desk and, and saying, all right, let's, you know, and to me, it's an iterative process and you find yourself paying more attention to the little details that, that over time start to really make a big difference. Yep. hundred <laughs> percent. So, so with that being said, uh, Keith, maybe this is a, a good time to segue into Chris. Maybe you could, uh, tell us about your year without EQ, uh, article, which, which you posted on your blog a couple of years ago and, and, uh, I found it and uh, I sent it to Keith and we said, well, this is really an interesting thought provoking uh, approach here. And so we, we, uh, we reached out to you and we were, we were thrilled to be able to present that in a magazine. So can you, can you tell us a little bit about that experiment and, and how you approached it and, and maybe what you took away from it? Sure. Um, it goes back a long way. Um, when I first started getting into audio, um, this was pre-internet um, and the small town that I was in at the time, um, it was really difficult to come across 
fresh new information on audio. So um, all the things that I could get my hands on to read were uh, engineering manuals that you know spoke in the, the purity of audio and uh, the shortness of signal chain and the uh, the reduction of distortion and uh, things you know all the fluffy stuff that we like to talk about in audio. But the one thing that um, kept being impressed on me over and over when I read these things was if you have an issue with the way something sounds, if you can fix it at the source, it will help out in every step along the way. Um, less, well, this was most of these things, most of these books that were, I was reading were written at the time where analog audio was the only audio. So if you needed to do something to the audio chain, you would have to have a physical device deal with uh, an EQ was an inserted device. A compressor was an inserted device. You know, the good old days. So all these how-to manuals basically said fix it at the beginning. Move the mic, change the tone of the original source, fix it before it becomes an electrical signal, and then uh, as it goes along the path, it will be easier to take care of, manipulate, mix, master, everything, because you have to do fewer things to it. Um, There's a whole lot of science behind it, but um, that has stayed with me all the way through my process. So as I was getting um, into the mix of Umphreys to jump ahead 20 years, um, I knew that I wanted to present a a very impactful, dynamic, good sounding rock and roll mix. Um, I come from a, a prog rock background. So I think I know what I wanted, you know, a progressive rock band to sound like. Um, I did not want over compression. I did not want sounds that didn't sound like the natural instrument they were playing, the guitars, the drums, etc. <laughs> so when I started working with the band, I was doing all the things I could to fix things at the source. Okay. So, um, as I was getting through all these small changes, uh, I was noticing that, um, as I would fix the sound at the source, uh, the channel strip would clear up, you know, we'd go down to just a high pass. And uh, one day I thought, why don't I see if I can just get rid of all the corrective EQ on these channels you know, for no good reason other than, you know, I set it as a goal. Um, if it worked out, it worked out. If not, you know, I'd move on to whatever was next. Um, and then we started moving towards that, you know, taking all those little steps. I started thinking about what behind this is, is benefiting me. What in this process of removing EQ filters actually is adding to the improvement that I think I'm hearing. Um, that's when I started getting into the study of how an EQ works, uh, physically how the filter adds to or takes away from that bandwidth that you're wanting to boost or cut. And either analog or digital, um, it is an inherent function of an EQ to add a slight amount of delay to the phase of the signal. Um, that's the way it is. That's the way EQs work is they, they manipulate time, which manipulates frequency. So if there is a, a slight manipulation of time and phase, then theoretically it should be audible. Um, so if you were to you know, grab a six band parametric and you know, do three, bo- three boosts and three cuts in the same place, it's not going to come out flat. It may come out flat at frequency, but it's not going to come out coherent in time 
because you've added six filters that each are doing something to the time phase of the signal. So if theoretically removing EQ removes those little phase smears, let's call them, then by removing those filters, I should clear up the, the time phasiness caused by all those little filters. And at the end of the day, by, uh, by having this the high passes on the mix, um, I think clarity has been improved. Um, comparing mixes with EQ, just, you know, a few filters you couldn't notice. But, you know, if I go back and uh, listen to shows from five or six years ago, it, the mix doesn't seem as open. It doesn't seem to breathe as much. And it's not really a function of compression and dynamics. You know, we all know what that sounds like if you get a compressor down too tight or your attack is too quick. Uh, this is more of a space and frequency, space between the notes. It's gotten to the point where um, the old adage that says, uh, you know, if you have two channels that, or, or two signals that are trying to occupy the same bandwidth of your audio range, uh, you should use an EQ to scoop out one so that the other can exist. Well, I don't do that, and all my instruments cut through just fine. So I don't think that that is actually a way to fix that problem. I think that by removing the phasiness of the, quote, repair filters that you've installed, you'll get... I was able to get closer to the signal that I was aiming for in the end. Uh, that doesn't work for every band. That doesn't work for every type of music. But for this type of music and this band, it's exactly what I was shooting for. And in the end, uh, removing those filters and getting away from the EQ, smooth things up and polish things off in a way that I had never been able to find with any of the solution that I had tried. One of the things that, that is overlooked, there's you know so much debate and discussion about phase shift and the audibility and uh no one talks about the the impulse response though um if you if you look at the ir of a signal on an analyzer and you add any filter you can see it smear um you know so yep. so so there's a real serious effect on the transients and and that's going to become audible far before you know any the, the, to me the fate the talking about the phase shift like you said is, is a mathematical reality of how filters work and and so you know, to me, you're sort of, if that's where your focus is on audibility, you're sort of missing this gigantic, hugely audible thing, which is, well, we have really, really altered the, the time domain response of this signal in a massive way. Um, and so what I think is so striking about, you know, what I learned from, let me say this, what I learned from your writing about this experience is, and I don't think, you can correct me if I'm wrong, I, I'm sure you're not saying, hey, everyone go out and take your EQs out of your rig. Um, I don't think that's the the takeaway. You know, I think the takeaway is, hey, before you reach for that, whatever it is, EQ, compressor, delay, reverb, whatever it is, think about what you're trying to accomplish. Make sure you actually want that thing in there. You know, don't just – it's and we've said this with uh, – when we had Jim Yakubuski on a couple uh, weeks ago, you know, we were talking about the same thing. He said you used to really have to want that effect because you had to get it and patch it in and put it in the rack and get the insert cables going and – uh, you know, that was a deliberate decision that you really said, man, I really could use an EQ here. And nowadays that's pretty much gone because it's digital. We can have whatever we want, um, as much of it as we want. And so it's very easy to just say, let me throw an EQ, let me throw some compressor on. And so what I liked about what you were, you were pointing out is, you know, maybe we should still go through this mental process of, do I really need this here? 
uh, let me really evaluate what is, like you said, what, what is, what, how is this serving me? What is it helping me accomplish? What goal am I working toward with this? And I think viewed through that lens, I, I actually do find myself being more conservative with filters and being more conservative with stuff. And, and again, if this isn't directly helping me achieve the goal that I need to achieve, whether that's in, in a mix or whether that's tuning a, a, a PA system, uh, you know, there's a little more, uh, more rigorous evaluation process for me saying, is this going to help me get to where I need to go? And if not, then I'm not going to do it. Oh, I agree. Um, I think some of the best mixes I ever put together was when I was dependent on eight compressors and eight gates. That's it. Right. Right. Yeah, that's true. And, and, uh, I did a, a tour very early on in my career and it was one of those just, uh, all it was, I, I, I joke jokingly call it the crappy club tour because we hit every club with broken, uh, gear that, that exists in the country. <laughs> so it was like how many, you know, the 24 channel snake and, uh, we have 16 of them tonight or, uh, there's four subs, but two of them are blown up. And so every night it was, Sort of like uh, the Scrabble bag, like you're, you're picking out what components of your system are not going to be functioning tonight. <laughs> so, so when you, so the first thing I did was said uh, I stripped down my input list. Uh, I think when I inherited the show from the from the previous engineer, he had something like seventeen or twenty one inputs on the show, and I, I got it down to like ten. Um, and and that oh, nice. really clears things up. You have far less, you know, multiple entries and summation and and. Uh, it also speeds your sound checks up, and it gives me more time to go into the venue and get the PA working. Uh, because if the PA is not working, or if your your money channel's down, you know that that bottom of the floor tom mic maybe isn't isn't the best use of the time. And so, you know, I found that over and over again, return to simplicity is key in saying, I only have, like you said, I only got four channels of compression tonight. Um, you have to be very deliberate about about where you choose to use those, and, and I think. It's harder these days to follow that mindset, especially for people that have grown up completely in the digital world and haven't ever had to make that decision. Of sometimes it was literally like, "Well, I need to lose two inputs from my show tonight," and and so I, you know that's a. Uh, and sometimes you talk to the band and say, "Look, you have an acoustic guitar input for one song, and and I don't, I just don't have it tonight, guys. I'm sorry." And and it becomes a group effort to, well, let's let's put on the best show we can given these given these boundary conditions, and it's certainly not optimal. And I would certainly not want to be the guy to go to a band and say, you got to cut your acoustic song. But that dialogue of here's what we have to work with and what's the best solution we can come up with, you know, that has really served me well as, as annoying as it was at the time um, and as frustrating as it was at the time. It's really taught me to, you know, be very mindful of what I'm asking for and what gear I'm using and the choices I'm making in the mix. And, and, and definitely, I've definitely benefited as a result of that. Oh, Absolutely. Um, we have uh, our next gig coming up um, is in Mexico. Um, we're not going to be on any of our own gear. Uh, we're walking up to uh, a couple of profiles that hang out at the beach. So I'm guessing 80% of the faders are going to be working. Uh, <laughs> no plug-in package at all. Um, any microphone I, I want, as long as it's made by Sure. <laughs> um, and it's going to be a great show. It's going to be phenomenal. It, it's all about, you know, here's the tools, there's your audience, here's your band, now make it happen. Right. Um, and no matter, you know, what gear we get put in front of, it's, it's our responsibility to make it happen. And, you know, hopefully everybody's happy about it. To me, that's, that's really what, what excites me about the audio engineering field as a whole. Um, you know, I, I, I do, I've done some longer run musicals and stuff. And by, by the first week, I'm bored. 
Uh, you know, I, I don't want to keep mixing the show, you know, and it's fine. And, and there are people that are just phenomenal at that. And I'm not one of them um, because for me, it's about, well, what's the next challenge and what's the next problem that I have to solve? And, and how do we use this tool set, whether it's a skill set or whether it's what's physically available to us to, to put the show on? And that's, you know, that's sort of a, a return to, to basics for me. And that's, same thing with system tuning. I, I can't go into a venue and say, I need 16 more boxes. Well, they don't have them. This is what you got. Um, and so, so, you know, it's, it's really, you're almost forced to more deeply understand the craft and to more deeply understand the principles involved when you have to just say, here's what we have and let's do what we can. And to me, that's, that's part of the, uh, the attraction is, is I love getting in there and solving those problems. And, and what I've come to really appreciate is when the artist has a trust in you that they're not worried about that. Um, you know, it, it, hopefully you want to get to a point where the artist knows, oh, well, Chris is, Chris is going to make us sound good. We don't have to worry about that. Of course we're going to sound good. Chris is out there. You know, that's, that's, that's what I strive for uh, with my clients is, you know, y- yes, there's some crazy situations going on out here at front of house, but, but that's what you've hired me for. And so I'm going to handle it. And you go out and you, you put on a great show and I'll make sure that people hear your show. And and to me, that's that's uh, the exciting part uh, of doing it. Oh, I agree. I, I look forward to that half hour before showtime. Uh, you know that you get the little butterfly. Like, have I, you know, dotted all my eyes and crossed all my T's? And that that's my favorite part of the show. Once you get started, eh, it's all downhill from there. <laughs> <laughs> All righty. Awesome. Well, Chris, um, we uh, we should uh, start wrapping it up here. Uh, you have some dates coming up with Umphrey's, uh, what, around New Year's in Atlanta? Yeah, we're doing uh, four nights at the Tabernacle uh, for New Year's. And then uh, I believe tour starts January 11th in yes. uh, Richmond, Virginia. Mm-hmm. And then we're on Jam Cruise after that. And uh, we're kind of going to be in your neck of the woods. Yeah, you will. You'll be coming. Yeah, absolutely. You'll be coming through the Midwest uh, about the start in the second week of that tour. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I love the name of it, by the way. Wax on, wax off. Very nice. <laughs> um, one of the really cool things about uh, working for Humphreys is uh, we have this thing where um, the fans pick out the best live tracks the previous year and they release a Hall of Fame album and they release it on vinyl. So every year I get uh, a, a two disc set of my mixes on vinyl, oh, which cool. is pretty freaking amazing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Now I go back two or three years and it's hard to listen to them again. Cause I'm like, Ooh, I did that. <laughs> Very and, cool. You know, that there's always that one venue where you just cringe and then the fans love it. And you know, it gets on the album. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, anybody interested in checking these guys out, which I, would highly recommend uh, just go to umphreys.com the uh the tour uh itinerary is all right there for you and, and starting with these uh events coming up for new year's in atlanta and uh if you'd like to check out more from chris uh he has a a, a site it's at uh, flying eye pro uh it's a wordpress site i'll put the link on our uh podcast page so any of you folks listening to this if you go to our podcast page it'll be right there for you you can read more from chris find out more uh about him and so on so chris uh thank you so much for your time and uh 
wish you a happy holidays and uh, best of luck here going forward. Awesome. It was great talking to you guys.